Afghan war ends with uh, the creation of um, something called the Army of Revenge. Did that's they actually a... call it that? Yeah, that's never a good sign. No, but it seems to be, uh, you know, standard practice again. Can't allow these, uh, what what were they calling them? These savages yeah. to, uh, to win. Um, I remember, I don't think it was the... They didn't call themselves this, but there was some kind of like. Remember, with the in the Opium War, there was like a a vampire fleet or something. They were called Federal Vampire Fleet. Was, but I don't think they called themselves that. I think it was like the British press that was making fun of them or something. Anyway, here we go. Uh, April eleventh, eighteen forty-two. Uh, Pollock. Have we heard of Pollock yet? Pollock is the com- basically the British commander of the so-called Army of Revenge. So he uh, gets through the Khyber Pass. Um, uh, they call it forcing the Khyber Pass because I imagine there was considerable opposition. And Dost Mohammed Khan's uh, son, Akbar Khan, goes to meet him. So there's going to be a battle here. Um, but uh on it's the battle doesn't happen yet so uh there's um this this so this is like uh remember just for context the the east india company army uh marched back to jalalabad being kind of picked apart by uh by akbar khan's forces um they when they reached jalalabad they uh they were in, you know, there was hardly anyone left. Uh, there's a famous painting from later with just one guy, which was, which I used the painting, the remnants of an army for, um, for the art for the previous episode. So people mm-hmm. have seen that. Um, and so now uh, they're sending another army. They they kind of have recognized that they're not going to be able to keep or or occupy Afghanistan. So this is pretty much just to. Uh, whatever, teach them a lesson, uh, etc. So um, there's a Brigadier Monteith who uh, goes through on this on this war path. On June 17th, there's a big massacre and rapes and so on in Ali Bagan, the, the village. So this is a quote, uh, a miserable hamlet about six miles from Jalalabad on the Peshawar side is assailed by a brigade of British troops who happen to find some accoutrements belonging to the men of the 44th. The village was given up to plunder. The women were violated and the tenements burned. Um, <laughs> there's a letter. Um, there's a letter to the Times um, on October 10th, 1842. And uh, it's worth quoting in detail. Uh, the Afghans, monsters though they are said to be, appear to have one redeeming virtue they do not visit the offenses of their enemies upon the helpless women who fall into their hands they do not carry out the schemes of retribution by ravishing the wives and daughters of their enemies we hope that we shall hear no more of such excesses as those perpetrated at ali bagan for that which is in itself disgraceful becomes doubly disgraceful when contrasted with the very different conduct of those who although less is expected from them have set us an example which we shall do well to imitate Admitting even the virtue of retribution, we find no excuse for the ferocity which would visit the sins of the guilty upon the guiltless, and which would drag down destruction upon all without regard to sex or age, or a single thought of the probable connection of our victims with those who have injured us so much. 
We trust that General Pollock will make a severe example of some of the men who have disgraced their colors and their country by their excesses at Ali Bagan. So um, we're putting our trust into General Pollock now. Uh, so they go through the Peshbolak Valley, um, looting every village. There's a there's a bit from Lady Sale, <laughs> her, her book, I guess. Uh, she wrote, uh, There has been a great battle at Peshbolak where every man, woman, and child was killed. That at Ali Bagan, the men were all killed, but the women and children spared. So Farouk Hussein, who I read this quote in, he says, Sale was probably told that the women were not spared and at all in Ali Bagan, but were raped, which was a weapon of war that Pollock's men increasingly used. Now you have a, you have a doubt I, about Farouk. I find that incredibly hard to believe okay. that someone would tell Lady Sale that the women were raped. Oh, you think Lady Sale would just be, be have been so precious that they would have tried to protect her from that? Uh, Victorian morality. That, that's a good point. Yeah. Nobody would have told Lady Sale any such thing. These are not lady things. No, this is a woman who went through the entire retreat from Kabul, like drinking tea and, you know, wondering if her outfit uh, was proper for a retreat under fire. This is also a woman who got, you know, shot in the wrist and, you know, business as usual. She is right. so above right. everything, right? right? Never named any of the servants, any of the people who died that weren't British. But also that Victorian morality, like some, if somebody had said, oh, well, there were some indignities visited right. upon the you know, women of Ali Bagan, she would have thought, oh, my God, did someone look at their ankles? <laughs> she might so, have swooned. Yeah, I find, I find that idea uh, very, very hard to believe. Um, so we have I, another... Not, oh, not that the rapes happened, but that yeah. anybody told Lady Sale. Lady Sale. We have General Knott who I think shows up in 1857. That name is definitely familiar. So he's raiding the villages of Argandeb and kidnapping women. Um, they're running robbery rings in Kandahar. Um, eventually, they expel the inhabitants uh, under Rawlinson's order in March 1842. So um, one of the problems with General Knott is that he actually um, mistreats the Afghan allies of the British um, but he is militarily successful uh, in repelling uh, Dost Muhammad Khan's forces several times. Um, the old uh, blowing people from the cannon trick, which we've seen, uh, well, which we will see again in India, um, 1857. Colonel Palmer uh, does this at Kilat Gilzai. Um, but eventually, so Colonel Palmer is trying to hold on to this fort, um, Kilat Gilzai. Um, and the Gilzai tribes are, you know, deciding which side they're going to be on. Uh, and they eventually decide against um, the British. Uh, so they take hostages and they're trying to hold on to this fort, uh, you know, through hostages and punishments and, you know, blowing people from cannons and so on. But um, eventually they leave the fort. They dismantle the fort and flee in June under Commander, uh, Commander Leach. Um, there's a commander, Captain Warburton, who is uh, taken prisoner by Akbar, and he tells Akbar he hopes one day to see Kabul like the cantonments with not one brick upon another. Um, this is the guy who kidnapped an Afghan woman um, and, you know, forced her to marry him, whatever. Uh, Did Akbar blow him off a cannon? 
<laughs> no, I don't think he did. Does, mm. Is that what you heard? No, I'm just yeah. thinking he probably should have. <laughs> well, you know, um, these savages, you know, they can't get anything right, including blowing people from cannons, I suppose. Um, so Dost and Akbar, Do, so Dost Muhammad is under, is is in prison, right? They caught him. He turned. He had turned himself in. Um, but uh, Akbar, I guess, is still fighting on. Um, is that right? Or is Akbar also? No, Akbar is still fighting on. So, Dost Muhammad is, here's a quote about him, about his imprisonment. Dost Muhammad is kept in the strictest confinement, and the following are the precautions attempt, adopted to prevent the possibility of his holding any communications with his Kabul friends. There are upwards of 30 sentries in different parts of the camp whose muskets are all loaded with ball ammunition. No one is allowed to hold any converse, conversation with the Dost, except Captain Nicholson and his munchie. When his food is prepared, the officer on guard, a sergeant and four men, see it stirred up before it is sent to the tent for his use. At night, Captain Nicholson and the officer on guard see him stripped and put to bed. A European sentry with a lighted lamp is placed at each corner of his bed, and a sepoy guard with a party of irregular horse arranged around the camp. In the evening, he's escorted by a sergeant and four men to his place of prayer. I'm sorry to say that the dost is much reduced in appearance and altogether an altered man from what he was 12 months since. That's uh, quite a security detail. <laughs> so um, some, of the, uh, some of the hostages on the British side, the Connolly brothers, um, they don't fare so well. John Connolly dies of a brain fever in August. And the Amir of Bukhara, who also mistreated Shah Shuja's retinue and Dost Muhammad Khan's retinue, actually, uh, beheads Arthur Connolly. Uh, Arthur Connolly. Connolly. Arthur Connolly was the one apparently who coined the term "the Great Game" in 1839. Hmm. So 1842, August uh, 28th, another massacre by Knots troops. A hundred villagers uh, surrender and they're massacred after. There's an interesting letter here uh, for the environmentalist crowd. Uh, Abbott says, we destroyed all the vineyards and cut deep rings around trees of two centuries growth. Um, there's more of that kind of thing um, uh, later on. So there's a lot of destruction of trees, uh, mulberry trees for the silk, uh, grape trees for vineyards and so on. So um, he goes, not also goes to Ghazni. He destroys the old city of Ghazni and steals the tomb of Sultan Mahmud, an ancient antiquity, I guess. General Napier later writes, why did he destroy it? I do not like this. He seems a harsh man. <laughs> Hussein, uh, Farouk Hussein, the, the, the historian that I'm reading all this in, uh, he says, the British army left Ghazni as a heap of ruins as the sun set on the city of the Shah of Shahs. Ghazni was lost in the darkness of the night to be forgotten by history. It's true. Ghazni is not a major city in Afghanistan no. uh, anymore. No. It's like a little town. Um, so they, the, there's a there's a lot of destruction of gardens and fruit trees. Um, uh, uh, here's a quote. Uh, we are encamped in a beautiful garden today, close to the royal gardens of Nimla, which are the finest in the country. These gardens have not been destroyed by us yet as they are on our line of communication, and I dare say they will escape if the natives remain quiet. Our way of destroying the country is very simple, merely cutting a ring through the bark of every... And the inhabitants live principally on dried fruit and flour made from the dried mulberry. 
so yeah. At another another village, uh, every house was destroyed, every tree barked or cut down, after which the detachment, having collected a considerable spoil of bullocks, sheep, and goats, marched back to camp. Um, in Dalrymple, uh, Neville there's a quote from Neville Chamberlain, who is very, another one of these sensitive imperialists like Lord Elgin. You remember him during the Opium War? Mm -hmm. So Neville Chamberlain really doesn't, he really feels bad about a lot of the stuff that's going on. So all in this village, all males over puberty are bayoneted. The women are raped, their goods plundered. Neville Chamberlain says, tears, supplications were of no avail. The musket was deliberately raised, the trigger pulled, and happy was he who fell dead. These horrible murders, for such alone must they be in the eyes of God, were truly wicked. This is one of the most beautiful valleys in Afghanistan, but we left it a scene of desolation. Um, Reverend I. N. Allen says, Every door was forced. Every man that could be found was slaughtered. They were pursued from yard to yard, from tower to tower, and very few escaped. One door, which they refused to open up summons, was blown in by a six-pounder, and every soul bayoneted. Another soldier writes about this same village. A hundred dead bodies lying about and six or eight children were found roasted to a cinder. They had been concealed beneath heaps of chaff which had burned. One woman was the only live thing in the fort. She was sitting the picture of despair with her father, brother, husband, and children lying dead around her. She had dragged all their bodies to one spot and seated herself in their midst. So you remember after Opium War Two, they were debating whether to destroy Beijing altogether and settled for burning down the Summer Palace. So they're doing this. They're debating whether to destroy Kabul or not altogether. So General Knott uh, wants to. Um, Akbar returns the rest of the English prisoners. Um, so the British government, remember, has um, still has hostages from the from that family, from Dost Mohammed Khan's family. So they tell him their plan is to deport his child and bring him up as a Christian in London, which they did to Prince Dulip Singh after the Anglo-Sikh Wars. Um, and Rawlinson eventually says, happily, we're saved the necessity of so undignified and extraordinary a communication. So Kabul's people flee the city. They uh, British plunder the city, massacre the inhabitants. They attack the stronghold of Istalif, and there's a big massacre there. Um, here's a quote from Haslock. Many a hiding mother hen and inf newborn infant died, but such things as these, you know, must be at every famous victory. Um, a lot of women, I guess, commit suicide. Um, people are burned alive. Uh, Here's another one. All day the sack went on, and great booty did the captors get. Rich dresses, shawls, carpets, silks, horse trappings, arms, emblazoned Korans, etc. Prizes of jewels and money was the lot, but of a lucky few. A few desperate men had thrown themselves into different buildings, almost all being calculated for defense, and there defended themselves long, firing from loopholes in safety until an entrance being forced, they were put to the sword. Um, they also leave Jalalabad as a sm so-called smoking mass of ruins, dynamite the fort, burn the city down. Um, one officer writes in 1843, The work of retribution was now deemed accomplished, and indeed it was severe. Many of the fugitive inhabitants flocked unarmed to the campgrounds when forced marched, even before the rear guard had moved to pick up what refuse scraps might have been left there. Hardships they were experiencing among the snow-clad mountains, destitute of food, fuel, warm clothing, or shelter, none of which the necessaries of life, the necessaries of life they would find when the Avengers' retiring steps permitted their return to the spots of their accustomed dwellings with the long and severe winter of these regions fast approaching, nor will years repair the damage and evils inflicted. 
So it's a little bit like uh, you know, with all with everything going on in Palestine right now, I'm I'm reminded of the whole trope that the Israelis have of being the most moral army in the world, and you know, shooting and crying. We 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 can forgive you for what you did to us, but we'll never forgive you for what you made us do to you, kind of thing. Mm. Anyway, um, <laughs> onward. There's a bazaar called the Char Chatta, which is apparently was the greatest covered bazaar in all of Central Asia. They dynamite that, they blow up the mosque of Ali Mardan Khan, and uh, they install a twelve-year-old Shapur on the throne. Um, Hussein again. Uh, Farouk Hussein. Afghanistan was facing a scorched earth policy not seen since the invasion of Genghis Khan as homes were destroyed, women ravished, children abducted, and crops as well as foodstuffs destroyed. Dave, one day we should go back and do Genghis Khan, right? I get this feeling that Genghis Khan is like, um, I don't know. I don't. I, a big deal? There, there must be more complexity <laughs> to the story than just complete destruction of everything. Is there? I don't know. Um... There's a little nuance. If you submitted immediately, you would be spared and you would pay taxes and so on. But, you know, your town or city would escape being sacked. However, if you didn't, they were going to make an example of you and kill every living thing in the city. Mountains of skulls, all of that. That's pretty well documented. It seems to have been a policy. If we do this every now and again, like for every incredible massacre, nine other towns or cities are going to surrender very quick. Right. And then on top of that, there's the, uh, the nomad uh, hatred of cities. Right. So, so destroying cities was the part value. of the policy too. Yeah. And but I I, guess... I'm surprised uh, Hussein forgot uh, Timur. <laughs> are like, you though? <laughs> in, in between... Genghis Khan and the British, uh, Timur was pretty, you know, in the same line. <laughs> I wonder why he missed that one. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. So um, Captain Trowers uh, agrees with uh, Farouk Hussein. He says, this is not fair warfare and not to my taste. And um, naturally, he blames the Sikhs. Um <laughs> As he, he goes back to that garden of Nimla, the, the beautiful garden of Limna, and there are these stones which are legendary and much venerated by the Afghans. So he has them pounded into powder. Um, you know, the Americans, <laughs> the Americans, uh, again, like I got to say, in the 1843, if, if the Americans are, are not um, impressed with your human rights record, that's saying something, but. Here's a letter to the Edinburgh Chronicle. We have been in the habit of speaking of British justice, British generosity, and British forbearance. But those terms must never be whispered more. Nothing that has happened since the awful barbarities perpetuated by Cortes and Pizarro in Mexico and Peru can be compared in savage cruelty and injustice with the deeds which have been done by our armies in Afghanistan. I wonder why he did, why they didn't mention... <laughs> Uh, the religious wars, the sack of Magdeburg, the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another witness, Roebuck, he says, um, our troops, uh, f- having fully completed the work of retribution, they were set to perform and left behind them memorials of their vengeance, all but imperishable. 
have now been finally withdrawn from the Afghan territories. Ghazni, Kabul, Istalif, and Jalalabad have shared a common doom. Havoc and desolation have marked the path of our conquered armies. A conquering armies, probably? Uh, and as foul a revenge has been re- inflicted on our foes as the warmest advocate of retaliation could desire. This sounds a lot like Tolkien to me, though, the way he's talking. While the destruction of the city and fortifications was going on, the soldiery seemed to have been left uncontrolled to the exercise of their worst passions. The wretched inhabitants driven from place to place were butchered without mercy, Armed and unarmed, guilty and innocent alike, fell beneath the sword of the relentless victors. Our aristocratic rulers who directed and sanctioned these atrocities have incurred a heavy load of guilt, but so have the responsible beings of whom the British public is composed in allowing such deeds to be done in their name. So this is a little bit of uh, early anti-imperialism, right? The idea that the more democratic we are, the more responsible we are for what our pretty sanitized, though. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the other thing that they do is, um, they kind of change the goalposts, right? So now they're saying at the end of all this, they say, well, we were doing all this to open up trade. (laughs) Yeah. And one member of parliament was kind of making fun of this. He said, we might therefore relinquish all hope of advantages from opening the Indus to our trade. We have destroyed every town which could afford us a market. And centuries would elapse before Afghanistan recovered from the misery and desolation in which it had been plunged. There's a Lord uh, Bro- Broham, I guess, B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M. And I actually really like his speech. <laughs> his speech is really good. Um, you know, I mean, he's a Lord and I, it, there's something about the way they thunder against these things while they're doing them. But it's a good speech. He says, prodigious works of human industry, mighty remains of the skill as well as the wealth of the past ages. Vast monuments of ancient industry and taste, great bazaars, the resort of trade and the sources of peaceful commercial prosperity leveled with the ground and their fragments scattered in the dust. Great fires, great cities set fire to by the avowal of the incendiary general. If it be said that our regiments could not bear to see the ground over which they passed bleached with the bones of their countrymen who had perished on the same spot last year by the hands of those they were sent to attack. If this is to be the defense, then I naturally ask, whose fault was it that they were there? How came they to be in that country to be massacred? Whence arose these horrors? What what gave rise to these scenes of slaughter? By whom, in consequence of what, through whose plans or whose policy did it occur that these visions of blood were presented to the site? I say those who went there, those who made the aggression on Afghan territory, they have themselves to thank, and those that sent them, for these cruelties. When men invade a country, they must not expect the invaded to be very nice as to the means they employ in their self-defense or in their vengeance. There is a great difference with respect to cruelties committed in repelling aggression and those perpetrated in making it. Hmm. (laughs) I'm thinking about (laughs) Palestine when I read that. Oh, wow. So that's quite a speech. Anyway, uh, if they were there, there were people complaining in the um, British press and parliament about the expense of this army of revenge. But yeah, they were told that's the only problem with it. <laughs> but they were they were told not to worry because the increased demand for opium after oh. the opium war was going to pay for it. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> So the other thing that the other reason they were so um, 
they were so vicious uh, after this um, war in 1842 was uh, there's a lot of talk of how they were really worried about the Indians losing their fear of the, you know, British, like their yes. kind of the mystique about white people, the invincibility, like the inevitability, <clears throat> like don't try to, don't try to fight back, right? We're too much better than you. So if they, you know, if they let it stand, then, uh, you know, Indians might revolt too, which they did, of course, in 1857. So yeah. Farouk Hussein actually says this. He's like, the, basically, this is the count. The countdown to 1857 has started. Um, so other wrapping up of this. So there's an Anglo-Sikh war, uh, 1845 and 1849, which results in the end of the Sikh empire. So they were hot on the heels of this Afghanistan war. Um, and uh, Dost Mohammed Khan, uh, you know, Farouk Hussein is very disappointed that I guess the 1857 um, rebels were hoping Afghanistan would uh, ha- help them somehow, and they obviously didn't. Um, Dost Mohammed Khan stayed neutral, and uh, he, uh, Farouk Hussein, you can, uh, you can, you can answer this, but Farouk Hussein is basically like Dost Mohammed was kind of broken by his long-term in British custody and he'd become, uh, he calls him a mouse. Um, he, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure he, about that. You can refute that. Uh, but he, the other thing that uh, Farouk Hussein says, which I think is really fascinating is that India up until 1857, even like even with the vast increasing company influence um, was uh, part of the Persian islamic culture that included the persian empire and afghanistan and like that huge part of the world um and you know india was never mogul india was never part of any persian empire it was its own thing and it was huge but but they you know they were part of that culture like producing all the you know literature and art and and uh, high culture and writing um science etc and so when when in and the biggest demographically speaking the biggest and probably the wealthiest center of persian culture so when 1857 happens and and the british take over india directly and the language of high culture gradually becomes uh english over the next hundred years Mm. um that's uh that's a big loss um to the persian world so so you're 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 you you think it's unfair. You think Farouk Hussein is unfair to Dost Mohammed Khan. Well, he might be comparing the early or the young Dost Mohammed who, you know, seized the throne, overthrew the Durrani's, um, you know, had success on all fronts. Uh, really his only failure was uh, his son not taking the the fort near Peshawar so that he's left in a in a bit of a bind against the Sikhs that leaves him seeking an alliance with the British in order to get Peshawar back. Yeah. Then he, you know, gets invaded. Uh, you know, I don't know what you expect him to do. Uh, he fought, but lots of Afghans supported the British. Yeah. Or at least didn't fight against them because they were being paid. Yeah. So it, it's pretty hard to be a lion when, you know, the rest of the uh, pride turns against you so he had to flee and you know your favorite and mine the emir of bukhara imprisoned him and stole yeah. all of his stuff and then he escaped and okay so he ends up 
you know, a captive. Um, here's what he said about the whole process. I have been struck by the magnitude of your resources. These are the British resources, your ships, your arsenals. But what I cannot understand is why the rulers of so vast and flourishing an empire should have gone across the Indus to deprive me of my poor and barren country. Hmm. Now, at some point, the British realized that their new puppet was uh, too young, mm -hmm. too weak, and, and that they were inviting uh, a vacuum and, and chaos in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And you know somebody's going to come along and take over if you leave it that way. And they may not be uh, pliable. So you might have to go in there and destroy everything all over again. So for that reason, I guess, they decided to let Dost Mohammed go home and rule once again. Hmm. And he did. And, you know, the mouse um, conquered Balk and uh, captured Kandahar and, you know, regained control over the southern Afghan tribes. Now, okay, so he reversed his former policy and he signed a an alliance with the British. Uh, Henry Lawrence, the chief commissioner of the Punjab, signed it with him. Uh, but isn't that just recognizing realities? Hmm. You're not going to start the whole process over again and start looking for Russian help, are you? Right. That's, you know. So I'm not sure what Farouk Hussein wants him to do. You know, fight the British. The British have withdrawn. Now, in 1857, he declared war on Persia in conjunction with the British. Um, the treaty that solved that conflict um, ended up with uh, Herat under a Barakzai prince. So that's got to be a win for Dost Mohammed. And then during the Indian Rebellion, he um, played it kind of cool, stayed out which is wise, don't you think? Well, you know, as a patriot, <laughs> staying wise. But yeah, I see what you're No, but I mean, he had to be watching the British wars with the Sikhs and going there. Good. Yeah. You deserve it, right? right. <laughs> What's he going to do? Go help the Sikhs? I don't think so. Right. Um, and then, you know, what's he got in common with the, the, uh, the Sepoy mutiny and, and Indian independence? Nothing to do with him. I, I can see he would have a lot to lose by supporting them, but not a lot to gain. I mean, at least he didn't stab them in the back, right? Just to get a, a you know, a pat on the head from the British. Uh, his later years, he had troubles uh, in Herat and in Bukhara, imagine. And he dealt with them for a time, but in 1862, here comes another Persian army. And... Um, uh, he drove them out and May 1863 recaptured Herat and he died uh, 9th of June 1863. His post-war of revenge record doesn't sound that awful to me. Not, 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 not mousy? Well, I guess he's a mouse relative to the British. Like, if you okay, think of it... Okay, but what do you want him to do? Declare war on them? 
attack them, that would have been foolish and short-sighted. Well, how, it, I, I guess it all depends. From from my perspective, it all depends how close to victory the eighteen fifty seven was, right? If it, if there were a few, if there were a few more allies, could they have, you know, got the British out? And if they could, no. then that was, then it was bad. But if they couldn't have, then yeah, he was wise to. to no, uh, they yeah. they could have won a few victories. They could have taken some other towns. But hey, even if they take Calcutta you've already been introduced to the the army of revenge you think the british are going to let that pass they would well they but they need indian troops the army of revenge was indian troops right they need indian troops to do it right they, they couldn't yeah so but they're going to recruit another army and send it in and it, it, if it has a larger british contingent and yeah. and you know the british they will fight to the last gurkha life to <laughs> crush exactly. the yeah, but that's. So, I mean, that's the that's the nature of revolution. Is can you win those? You know how 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 much of the population can you win over? If the British can't raise Indian troops in India, they can't do a thing. Which eventually was, you know, Gandhi's point, right? In the forties, in nineteen forties, a hundred years later. But. Yeah, but no, I don't. Plus, you know, we we covered this in the eighteen fifty seven episode, so the Indian leadership was too divided and they weren't all in there motivated by the spirit of patriotism. So I, I don't see them making a united front and, and kicking the British out. Just, eh. meanwhile, yeah. a little, um, a little flash ahead to the, uh, the great game. Hmm. So for the next three decades, the Russians continued to advance in central Asia. They got closer and closer to Afghanistan. Uh, in 1842, their border was on the other side of the Aral Sea, but uh, by 1865, they formally annexed Tashkent, and then in 1868, Samarkand. They made a peace treaty in 1873 with Amir Alim Khan, uh, the ruler of Bukhara, but that treaty basically stripped him of his independence. So by this date 1870s the russians are on the northern bank of the amudarya uh that's pretty damn close uh dost muhammad was succeeded by his son sher ali khan but he was quickly <laughs> toppled by his older brother uh muhammad afsal khan and they you know fought each other uh, for quite a while, and Sher Ali Khan eventually was able to defeat his brother and regain the throne. Uh, he's got a, a reign that's remembered for attempts to reform. There's a theme that we've covered quite a few times. He created official government posts, reformed the military, introduced a postal service, and uh, promoted... Uh, Pashtun to be the, uh, I guess, the national language with, what, indifferent success? Would that be fair? Yeah, you know, I, I, because my, <laughs> my family connection uh, are Pashto ethnically, but they speak Dari uh, to each other. So when, even when I went to Afghanistan, there were people who only spoke Pashtun, uh, who only spoke Pashto in, uh, in Kabul, but most people spoke both or um, or Dari. 
So yeah, it's you know, but I I do think it was important. I have some notes on Sher Ali Khan from um from uh, a book that Hangam sent me, uh, Kabul History, seventeen seventy three to nineteen forty eight. So uh, Sher Ali Khan was now and which is father now returning. So wait, uh, no, I'm talking about Sardar Abdul Rahman Khan. He's the son of Afzal Khan, fought in the civil war in which his father opposed another former Amir, uh, Sher Ali Khan. So this is about Abdul Rahman Khan, who's also trying to reform. So I'll just say from um, this choice, which would reveal an autocratic administrator, a potentially unified Afghanistan would emerge a strong state within boundaries recognized for the first time. Domestically, some of the changes revived the series of reforms introduced by Amir Sher Ali Khan. Certain economic and social reforms were introduced. Kabul was exposed to industrial technology and medical techniques through the skill of Indian and English technicians and doctors employed at the personal invitation of the Amir. So they're, yeah, they're trying to, they're actually using the, uh, you know, British Indian technical knowledge to try to do their modernization. Mm. Unfortunately, they're stuck between the British and the Russians. Uh, Sher Ali Khan tried to keep Afghanistan neutral. I think that's the only thing you can do. Does that make him a mouse? Uh, besides, you've, you've seen firsthand what's happened to all of your neighbors. Bukhara is gone. The Sikhs are now under the British rule you know so he's just trying to stay independent by staying neutral and that lasted until 1878 Mm -hmm. the british got the idea that there should be a permanent british envoy in kabul now you remember the last one mcnaughton (laughs) so i mean this is not going to be popular for Sher ali khan and it's also going to send a message to the russians so we're back to the great game uh, 1878 version. Well, and this is also memories of what's going on in China, right? This whole envoy business. It's like... Yeah, the envoy is going to start dictating policy to you yeah. and telling you what to do. And and I think Shirley Khan knows it. So he's resisting. He's delaying. He's... Uh, I don't know if he refused outright. That would be dangerous. Anyway, Lord Lytton the Viceroy of India ordered a diplomatic mission to set out for Kabul in September 1878. By this stage, it's no longer the East India Company. They're gone. So this is the British Viceroy. Uh, The mission was turned back as it approached the eastern entrance of the Khyber Pass. So they didn't even let them in. And this triggered the Second Anglo-Afghan War, which I find... If you look a little closer than, you know, a cursory reading, it becomes really interesting. So remember that date, September 1878. Mm -hmm. Second Anglo-Afghan War. The first campaign began in November of 1878. And I think, wait, 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 wait a second. You sent diplomats in September. They were turned back. And by November, you have an army (laughs) of 50,000 men ready to go when they do those congress of berlin or whatever those are usually three four months long themselves aren't they 
well, I just think, all right, you send the diplomats. Let's wait and see. No, let's not wait. Let's get the <laughs> army ready now. So 50,000 fighting men, mostly Indians, uh, of course, uh, three military columns, and they invade Afghanistan on three fronts. They won battles, the British uh, won battles at Ali Masjid and Pewar Kotal, which leaves the approach to um, Kabul virtually undefended. So I looked up these battles, which I had never heard of. Uh, Ali Masjid is a fort in the Khyber Pass. The Afghans had 24 cannon, and of course, they were firing round shot. I think the biggest gun they had was a 12-pounder. Meanwhile, oh, and firing round shot means they're smoothbore, right? Mm -hmm. So the British have guns firing 40-pound shells, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they described it as a stiff fight that uh, was not going anywhere until they were finally, they got a lucky shot. Two of their shells hit the central bastion of the fortress and silenced a stubborn Afghan seven pound gun. So you're <laughs> so 40 the, the, pound shells against a seven pounder. These shells are explosive. Yeah. Like they have, they're explosive. fused. Yeah. They're fused as opposed to firing round shot, which is just a cannonball. Right. Right. But it's, is it still a, just a giant, hunk of metal that's hitting you or is it something that no it's a shell that's going to explode it is going to explode yeah okay yeah the the timing on the fuse is a matter of you know science and uh, gunnery science but right. yeah the difference in in technology is like the stuff that we covered in china it's it's ridiculous right. um pewar kotal was a battle uh, fought in a steep ravine uh, the afghans had a good defensive position both sides had about four thousand uh troops involved. Uh, The Indians suffered 21 killed, 75 wounded. Afghan casualties are estimated at 200. So you can tell by the rounding up of the numbers who's telling the story. All of these battles, all of these campaigns, you can find dozens of wiki pages uh, put together by, uh, what would I call them, enthusiasts of British imperial wars. Yeah, imperialist buffs. Yeah, well, like H.G. Wells called them, little wars. So uh, this is where we can come back to the the idea of the martial races of India. So after the mutiny, Mm -hmm. the British came up with this concept that certain races in India made better soldiers than others, that they were more suitable. Uh, Coincidentally... Those races tend to be the ones that had fought for Britain and saved India for them. (laughs) So the Indian regiments that invaded Afghanistan in 1878, uh, even though most of them come from the Army of Bengal, they're predominantly recruited from those races that the British considered martial. uh, Jats, Sikhs, uh, Muslim and Hindu Punjabis, Pathans, Baluchis and Gurkhas. Hmm. So, yes, we're going to use Indians to invade Afghanistan again. So now Sher Ali is being invaded. What's he supposed to do? Uh, So he appealed to the Tsar for assistance. And the Tsar's advice was, you should seek terms from the British. (laughs) Basically, surrender and make the best deal you can. It's always, yeah, this is why great game, Cold War, it's all a bunch of bullshit, man. They, they, every time, until, I'd say, maybe very recently, 
that's been every time some third world country has asked Russia for help against imperialism, like eight times out of 10, it's like, yeah, we, we, we're not really in a position to help you. Sorry. Like the Congo, you know, when, when they overthrew Lumumba, this is, yeah, we're jumping uh, about 120 years ahead, but that, that, that like the Americans portrayed this as like a, the great game in Africa, like, it's the U.S. versus Russia in the Congo, but the Russians were not in the Congo at all. No, I mean, it had no. nothing to do with it. They had no idea. No, no. I Actually, mean there are other times. Vietnam, you know, there are cases when the Russians certainly helped uh, against the imperialists, but this mo- a lot of times it was not. Jeez. No, you're going to get some encouragement, and then <laughs> thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sher Ali actually went, I think, in person to see the czar. Like, that's how desperate he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, got nothing. Came back to Afghanistan. Who, who, is, the, who is the czar at this point? Uh, this is uh, Nicholas, okay. who is... Uh, oh, no, it's not Nicholas. It is um, uh, Alexander II. Oh, okay. Or third. I can't remember when Alexander II got assassinated. 1880s, I think. So yeah, yeah Alexander II. That's my guess. Um, right. So Sher Ali's son and successor, uh, Muhammad Yaqub Khan, with the British forces all over the country, I don't know what he's supposed to do. So he signed the Treaty of Gandamak uh, in May to prevent the British from invading the rest of the country. So according to the agreement, He's going to receive an annual subsidy and a promise, rather vague, of assistance in case of foreign aggression. <laughs> I love, I love foreign armies invading and pro- and complaining about foreign aggression. Yes, it's one of my favorite things. It's it's my it's been my favorite thing since two thousand and three Iraq occupation by the U.S. because that was their thing. They were like, "There's foreign fighters everywhere in Iraq." so in return for this subsidy and the promise uh yakub relinquished control of afghan foreign affairs to britain so british representatives are installed in kabul uh, and other locations british control is extended to the khyber pass and the northwest frontier province area and quetta are ceded to britain and then the british withdrew uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the deal they have the Israel Israel has in the West Bank, right? It's like the local you've become our local enforcer who <laughs> will give you some subsidies. Yeah. Um but Jakob signing the deal was not representative of the feelings of his countrymen. Um uh, mm-hmm. there was an uprising in September in Kabul and that led to the uh well, it's described as slaughter, but uh, let's they, just say that like, the British like representative. Like... <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know how if it's a slaughter when it's one guy. Uh, Sir Louis Cavagnari, the British representative, uh, well, and his guards and staff were killed, uh, which means the Second Afghan War is going to go on into a new phase, should be familiar by now. Army this of Revenge, be, part two, yeah. This will be the punishment phase. Yeah, punishment yeah. phase. Yeah, so the British invade again. Uh, one army led by uh, Roberts again, uh, Fighting Bob Roberts. We met him <laughs> before. Oh, Fighting Bob. 
There he is. Uh, he defeated the Afghans at Charasiab, uh, 6th of October. And I'm thinking, what Afghan army? <laughs> you know, the, the, they've already been defeated several times. So I don't know who he's fighting. Uh, but he had 4,000 troops against supposedly 12,000. And as we've become accustomed to, the casualties are disproportionate. Uh, 18 killed, 78 wounded for the British, and an estimated 500 killed and wounded for the Afghans. Two days later, he occupies Kabul. Then there's a force of 10,000 Afghans that stage an uprising mm -hmm. uh, near Kabul, led by, and I, this name is incredible, Gazi Mohammed Yan Khan Vardak. Wait, wait. The the Yan could be Yan, but it could just be Jan, right? I mean, in 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 um in far in Dari, when people say you know they would say D David John, like it would be like dear David. People always okay. added John. It could what be about, Muhammad John Khan Wardak. What about Wardak? Wardak is not a place. Is that a place in some? Where is that? I don't know. It just looked to me for a moment like some Polish guy had become Afghan. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I think it's all legit. That's all legit. Afghan. Yeah. All right. I bow to your expertise. <laughs> um, anyway, they're uprising. They attack the British near Kabul and besiege the uh, cantonment. This is December of 1879. But uh, the rebellion eventually collapsed. Mm. And uh, Yakub Khan, who signed the treaty was now suspected of complicity in the oh here we go the massacre of Cavagnari oh. and his staff okay. so it went from slaughter to massacre <laughs> see how that happens yeah so he the, the British suspect that he was complicit so they force him to advocate abdicate sorry and they start looking for you know different ways to settle the issues so do we put another puppet on the throne do we partition? Afghanistan between multiple rulers, you know, encourage them to fight each other rather than us. And finally, they decide to install uh, his cousin, Abdur Rahman Khan. Hmm. Which leads to another revolt uh, by Ayub Khan, governor of Herat. He defeated a British detachment at the Battle of Maiwan. And guess what? It's really hard to find a lot of detail about the Battle of Maiwan. Oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently, though, here's the, uh, the defense from the enthusiasts of, you know, the little wars. Uh, the Afghans defeated a much smaller force. Oh, of course, of course. Of course. Uh, consisting of two brigades of British and Indian troops under Brigadier General Burroughs. Uh, and... Their victory came at a high price. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Between 2,000 and 2,750 uh, Pashtun warriors were killed and probably about 1,500 wounded. British and Indian forces suffered 969 killed and 177 wounded. Then, the rest of the you know apology for the defeat goes, the Afghans had cannons. I mean, what? How dare they? <laughs> there's a there's a lot of I'm looking at a lot of these last stand paintings on Wikipedia. Yep. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And then there's oh, from my wand. Yeah, yeah. This is one. this is where the story becomes now very interesting. So they quote the obligatory Afghan praise for how bravely the British fought, nice. which will lead to the paintings you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also I don't know something like eleven British soldiers who you know, stood together to the very last. And then I suppose they were running out of ammunition. So they charged with the bayonet and the Afghans were absolutely amazed at their incredible (laughs) bravery. So that's how you turn your defeat into (laughs) paintings. Take some lessons, anti-imperialists. Let's (laughs) let's get on this. Start painting. Uh, Ayub Khan besieges Kandahar. Roberts leads a relief army. It's a long way, mm. uh, 320 miles from Kabul to Kandahar. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big land. I mean, right. But they went by a route that would ensure they were traveling through fertile land. And then get this: the army paid for everything they took throughout the march, including grain, fresh animals, and even firewood. The local wow. Afghans were more than pleased to barter with the troops. How desperate must they have been to do that? Yeah. And of course, the British troops are accompanied by 2,200 dually bearers. So I had to look up, what the hell is a dually bearer? And the They're sedan is, chairs. So that the so that the white guys can be Sit down and on... be carried, yes. Wow. 4,700 transport men and 1,200 servants in addition. So they're traveling oh. in style. Uh, yep. Uh, Battle of Kandahar and Roberts defeated Ayub Khan the 1st of September decisively, and that's the end of his rebellion. Uh, British lost 100 killed, 218 wounded, and the Afghan casualties are approximated at 1,000 dead and 2,000 wounded. So it looks like the war is officially over. Uh, Abdul Rahman Khan will be installed. He confirms the Treaty of Gandamak, so the British take over uh, some of the territories, and they also take control of Afghanistan's foreign policy in return for protection. Honestly, this is like the mob, protection money, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The Afghan tribes are allowed to maintain internal rule and local customs, and that way they can continue to provide a buffer between the Raj and the Russian Empire. Yeah, I you know, I'll I'll have more to say about this buffer idea because at first I just thought it's all boogeyman, but I actually think that being a buffer uh, has been what has been so harmful to Afghanistan's development. But yeah, I'll say more. Um, okay, so the British abandoned the idea of maintaining a resident after two residents being murdered, they've come to the conclusion (laughs) that they're not that welcome in Kabul. Besides, they've achieved all their other objectives. So uh, by April of 1881, the British and Indian troops have left. They've, uh, but they've managed to leave behind some uh, agents, you know, to smooth over the transition period. Uh, During Abdul Rahman's rule, there's no further trouble between Afghanistan and the British. Uh, he got the name, the iron Amir. Hmm. The Russians, uh, stayed out, uh, with 
the exception of the uh, Panjai incident. So the Russians were, they seized an Afghan border fort. The Afghans, you know, were ready to fight and, you know, look to the British who control their foreign policy. And I, I don't know if they were looking for permission or just telling them, you know, we're going to fight. And the British advised the Afghans to retreat. Don't worry about the fort, just pull, pull back and we'll settle the issue by diplomacy, which is a clear violation of the treaty. You've only got two things to do, Britain. Pay the subsidy and protect Afghanistan from foreign aggression. Foreign. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Abdurrahman's going to come to the only conclusion he can, which is that the British are no help whatsoever uh, mm. against the Russians. And uh, we're going to have to be a little more aggressive against their incursions. Yeah. Uh, then 1893, there's the, the Durand line, uh, British envoy oh, sent a, to. That's going to create a few headaches. For... Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so the is idea was to change. fix the limits of their respective spheres of mm. influence. Mm-hmm. So that's the creation of the uh, the new Northwest Frontier Province. So it basically partitions the Pashtun uh, nation, if you want to think of it yep. that way, uh, with more of the Pashtun nation being on the British India side than on the Afghan side. So yeah. the Afghans do not accept this. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, that kind of continues today. There was, even down to the 70s, there was a whole Pashtunistan idea. But when India was becoming independent, that was also another, uh, you know, question was like, what, what do, are we going to do a Pashtunistan? Um, but then oh, Pakistan. That. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there, there's a famous um, Congress, there's a famous Pashtun Congress, uh, you know, nonviolent organizer, leader type, uh, Ghaffar Khan, um, the, the frontier Gandhi, they call him. Oh. And he, you know, he didn't, he, he accepted, you know, Congress, he, he wanted independence, but he, uh, he wasn't into the Duran line and he, um, you know, he wanted, uh, he wanted a Pashtun, at least a Pashtun, um, you know, like they have a linguistic state, right? Like Punjab or. Yeah. Yeah. So the buffer thing, it's interesting. Well, let me just say in the, in 1919, um, there's a war, you know, at the end of world war one, which we'll get, we'll come back to this war, but Amanullah Khan, who's like another great reformer type who rules for 10 years, 1919 to 29. But Amanullah Khan, uh, he sort of wins for control of, Afghan foreign policy back from the British. So that's, that's like another, you know, to the extent that Afghanistan was semi, a semi colony because of the, the treaty, the Gandamak treaty, it's 1919, they win their foreign policy independence, which is kind of a big deal for them. Um, but yeah, this buffer zone question, I think like when you look at, when I look at the, the Central Asian republics, right? Like what, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, etc. Developmentally, they're way ahead of Afghanistan. And I think it's because of this buffer thing. Like being in one sphere 
uh, you know, being in the Russian sphere of influence, you know, they're just, they're, nobody's, nobody's trying to conquer and occupy them to stop Russia from being there because Russia's already there. So, uh, whereas the British, you know, they don't want a developmentally, you know, they don't want a powerful country on the border of their uh, India, Indian empire. So it's better for them to have a kind of a wasteland um, as a buffer zone, a no man's it, land. Whatever. It's right there in the name, Northwest Frontier Province. Yeah. This is the end of the road. And um, <laughs> yeah, and no, you don't invest in infrastructure there. Yeah. Because in a worst case scenario, the Russians move in and take over. So yeah. you would just be, you know, setting up goodies for them to take. You invest in making sure there isn't infrastructure there. So, you know, at the beginning of this uh, discussion, at the beginning of this episode, I kind of said, I, I blame these wars for Afghanistan's underdevelopment, but it's like the wars themselves are also part of this policy, this buffer zone imperial policy. So it's it's not it's not good to be somebody's buffer, an, an empire's buffer zone, especially if you're trying to modernize so as far as themes go i'd say this modernization one is is one but in afghanistan like we were looking at the persian empire the ottoman empire um and afghanistan it's just different in the sense that this buffer zone problem squishes a lot of their attempts to reform before they can even get going so they're trying to reform in these little windows in between anglo-afghan wars yeah yeah um, any other themes you notice? What does it all mean for you, Dave? Uh, no, I think you. I think you're right. I I like the fact that you you know modified your opening thesis when <laughs> presented with new evidence. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. It's not a the frontier is not a good place to be. Yeah. But I I don't know what they could have done otherwise. This is why I, I think portraying Dost Mohammed as a mouse like what what policy are you recommending fighting the british they tried that and it led to armies of revenge who just simply destroyed everything they could and you don't have the 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 numbers or the technology to you yeah. know i mean it's just yeah it's just the the fact that the that british policy is enacted by you know indians afghans in the region that's what's so i think that's what's so galling to people who you know are anti-imperialist today and they're like how did they get people to do that for them they, they got people to destroy their own region in a way but somehow that's not how people saw things back then <laughs> <laughs>